Good morning again. Please uh, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. That'll be our sermon text for this morning, 1 Peter 3, 13 through 18. And if you've been here for any number of weeks, you know that we've been working through 1 Peter for, uh, well, for much of the semester, I guess. And uh, we will keep working through it. Uh, but this week we, we come to this passage uh, with maybe one of the better-known verses in 1 Peter, I think, um, one of the better-known verses in 1 Peter, in verse 15. Uh, before we read this together, though, let's, let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you uh, would meet with us this morning. We pray that you would speak to us through your word. Uh, We pray that your spirit would be at work, uh, giving us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to receive what you have to say to us. We pray, Father, that you would give me words to say that would be true and right and good, and uh, that you would glorify yourself in our midst as you draw us closer to you closer to your son Jesus and give us uh, a greater sense of your grace and uh, a greater understanding of your call on our lives as your people. Father, we pray that you would, uh, that you would be at work uh, during this time, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter 3, uh, beginning in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Well, maybe you know the caricature the caricature of the sort of socially awkward Christian who, who doesn't understand personal space and approaches the unsuspecting non-Christian rather than asking questions and getting to know the person simply begins telling them they're a sinner and sharing the gospel at them rather than to them or with them. Some of us are that person, maybe, perhaps, or some variation thereof. Uh, Some of us are so afraid of being that person that we never share the gospel at all. Sometimes evangelistic speakers in church give the impression that if you're not regularly sharing the gospel with strangers you meet on an airplane, then you're probably not a real Christian. And then others of us are just afraid. Uh, Afraid of rejection, yes. Afraid of saying the wrong thing. Afraid of fulfilling that stereotype, And talk of sharing our faith makes us want to crawl into a hole and hope nobody notices that we're missing. Well, Peter to the rescue, I hope. 
this morning, Peter is going to exhort us to share our faith in the right way. Uh, there, there is another way. There's another way besides fearful, guilty avoidance on the one hand and demeaning finger pointing on the other. This morning, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, and we're going to see four things about sharing our faith. Those four things you can find on the back of your bulletin on the outline. We're going to talk about overcoming fear, getting ready, maintaining a good conscience, and honoring Christ. First, overcoming fear. Many of us are simply afraid. Uh, Afraid of being misunderstood, afraid of social rejection, afraid of losing friends. And really, this fear makes sense. Christianity has always been a polarizing religion. I mean, think about the words of Jesus in Matthew 10. He said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. According to Jesus, rejection is actually the, the expectation of the Christian. And so we're afraid. Now, one common way of addressing this fear is like this. Well, okay, that's true. But if you really loved Jesus, you would get over your fear and just speak up for Christ. Your silence is your love of the world. And if you don't speak up, you're going to go to hell along with those who don't hear the gospel because you didn't share it. Now, the biggest problem with this approach, and there are others, is that if that's what you think of God's grace, you don't have a gospel to share anyway. And so please don't share it. Peter takes a different approach. He he doesn't condemn us for our fear, but he speaks into our fear in two ways. And the first is in verses 13 to 14. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. First, as you follow Jesus, Peter says, no one can hurt you. Now, Peter's not delusional. Uh, He's writing to people who have experienced social rejection, people who, as history shows us, will soon face even greater types of persecution. He knows, according to verse 14, that they might suffer for righteousness' sake. And his point when he says... Who is there to harm you is not that you cannot be hurt or that you will not suffer. His point, as he explains, is even if you suffer, you will be blessed. Meaning, whatever man might do to you, he cannot undo the blessing of God. No one can take away the forgiveness of sins. No one can take away your adoption as sons. No one can take away your reconciliation to the Father or the gift of the Spirit or the hope of the resurrection. And so even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Hence, verse 17, he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, there there may not be a, a kind of eschatological emphasis in that verse, But the principle applies in the the widest sense, right? He's saying it is better to suffer now for doing good 
than to suffer eternally for doing evil. Whether Peter means to imply this or not, it's, it's a biblical principle, right? That, that we see it in Jesus that the cross comes before the crown, that the, the tomb comes before the empty tomb, that the death comes before resurrection life. And so the first way Peter deals with our fear is to say this, yes, suffering is real, but it's not ultimate. Social rejection may hurt, but it cannot harm you. You are safe in your Father's hands. And this is the way Jesus put it in John 10. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so are you afraid of social rejection for the gospel's sake? Well, wisdom looks at the big picture and the long run, and whatever happens, your Father will care for you. Now, the second way Peter speaks into our fears is, is again, the end of verse 14, into verse 15. He says, uh, do not fear or have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, apparently Peter uh, was reading Isaiah 8 for his devotions the morning that he wrote this letter because he, he's already quoted Isaiah 8, 14, back in chapter 2, verse 8, when he talked about the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. But now Peter quotes Isaiah 8, verses 12 and 13. And this is a, a, actually a word-for-word quote of the Septuagint of Isaiah 8. And Peter makes only two changes. Uh, he makes the singular exhortation to Isaiah, a plural exhortation to the whole church. And he adds one word, Christ. That one word he, he adds to clarify just who is the Lord who is holy. So again, verses 14 to 15, he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. In, in Isaiah, God actually goes on to say, Let him, that is the Lord, be your fear and your dread. And the point is, that is really the same as one that Jesus makes in Matthew 10, 28. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, God's point to Isaiah and Jesus' point to his disciples is the same, but it's not, fear, uh, don't fear the one who can hurt your body, but fear the one who can hurt your body and soul. That's actually not Isaiah's point or Jesus' point. <laughs> Uh, because uh, even those words uh, about destroying body and soul are a quote from Isaiah, Isaiah 10, verse 18, where God promises to destroy Israel's enemies. And so God's point is, don't fear the one who can hurt your body, but fear the one who will judge your enemies and cast them into hell. So Isaiah 8, 12 to 13 says, uh, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. That is, look, look at the big picture. Look at your protector. Remember his power. And yet Peter puts a twist on this. He, he doesn't say, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. 
Peter identifies Christ as the Lord. Now, in Isaiah, that's God's covenant name, Yahweh. Peter identifies Jesus with Yahweh. In no uncertain terms, Peter teaches that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Paul, of course, says the exact same thing when also quoting Isaiah in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, when he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. You can uh, look the quote up in Isaiah 45 if you're interested. And so if you want to have no fear or be troubled, Peter is telling us, remember that Jesus Christ is Lord. Set Jesus aside as holy, Peter says, which is to say, remember that he is like no other. He has no equal. He has no rival because he is Lord. And Peter doesn't simply say, oh, don't be afraid. Right? He, he knows our hearts. He knows that we're prone to fear. In fact, fear is closely linked with worship in the scriptures. And we were made to worship. We were made to stand in awe of the power and majesty of another. And so Peter doesn't simply say, stop fearing them. Rather, he says, as God regularly says in scripture, replace your fear of them with the fear of him. Which is to say, who is, who is bigger in your heart, God or man? Whose power has greater weight in your heart? If you want to be rid of the fear of man, Peter gives you the way forward. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. See and savor the glory of Christ our God. And as you see how big he is, as you see that and meditate on it and remember it and delight in it, you will see how small and how weak and how impotent people really are. Right? The greatest power that people have over us is, is they can put us to death. The greatest power Christ displays is conquering death in the resurrection. So if you want to be rid of fear, honor Christ the Lord as holy. It's a process to be sure, right? It's not going to happen overnight, but it does happen as we meditate on the gospel, as we work that into our heart, and as we remember the power of Christ is greater than the power of any man. And as you grow in your understanding of the sin-bearing and guilt-removing and death-defeating and life-giving resurrection power of the risen Lord Jesus, the powers of this age will take their rightful place in your heart at his feet. So one, overcoming fear. Second, getting ready. Some of us are not afraid per se. We just don't know what to say. Uh, we're not afraid of what people might do to us. We're afraid of, of saying the wrong thing. We want to be faithful to the gospel, and we think, well, I'm, I'm not really very good with words. I haven't studied theology. I might mislead someone. It's probably best if I say nothing at all. And besides, there are so many questions that might come up. I mean, I'd rather just keep my mouth shut. Here's what Peter says in verse 15. He says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Always be prepared. So what does it look like to be prepared? Well, the first thing I think you need to do is this. And this, this may be counterintuitive as we talk about it. But the first thing I think that we need to do is recognize our giftedness. 
Um, we'll get to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11 later, but it says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Peter says, We're all called to be stewards of grace. All are called to serve. But he says, God's grace manifests itself in different ways in each person's life. And there are two main ways that he talks about speaking and serving. And some of you in this room are gifted to speak. And some of you are gifted to serve. And some, maybe both. Contrary to the way that some paint the picture, though, God doesn't call every single one of us to go out and be street evangelists. You should get to know how God has gifted you and put those gifts to use, whatever they are. And it's as you employ the gifts that God has given you that you will make the greatest impact for the gospel, not as you try to imitate someone else's giftedness. And so the first thing to do, okay, recognize your giftedness. How has God gifted me to serve Him? The second thing is to be aware of opportunities. While it is true that the most important thing you can do is to figure out God's gifts to you and put those to work, that doesn't mean that you never move outside your strengths. Now, that's obvious when it comes to serving in mundane ways, right? If, if a guy sees someone in need, he can't say, oh, no, I'm gifted to speak. I don't have to help that person. <laughs> and in the same way, if someone comes up to you and says, you know, could you share the gospel with me? You can't say, no, no, I'm, I'm gifted to serve. You, you, go, you go talk to somebody else. But notice what Peter says. He says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks. Now, what is Peter asking of us? Be ready when people ask you about your faith to give an answer. And this is the way Paul puts it, too, in Colossians 4, 6. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, we need to be careful here. I, you know, I don't think Peter or Paul would say, you know, you're, you're off the hook unless somebody directly asks you to share the gospel. They don't ask, you don't say anything. But I think what they're both saying is this, right? be ready when the opportunity presents itself. How do those opportunities come? Well, all kinds of ways. They, that, they will happen more, I think, if you are using your gifts, whatever they are, whether speaking or serving, to bless others. Because you're demonstrating God's work in you, and that gives people something to ask about. Of course, in the context of Peter as a whole, and in these verses in particular, it, it will happen as we respond to suffering in hope. And remember, the whole context of Peter's letter is the suffering church. Uh, Peter is proclaiming to us the hope of the gospel, our reconciliation to the Father through Christ, the, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the future hope of the resurrection. And how do people often respond to suffering? Well, we respond to suffering in anger or in fear or in despair, right? We, we lash out or we cover up or we wallow in, right? We, we indulge either our anger at the world uh, that isn't going our way or we indulge our desire for pleasure to, to comfort ourselves in our troubles or we indulge our self-pity and just wallow in despair. But when we respond to suffering with hope, Right? Neither lashing out, nor covering up, nor wallowing in, then people take notice. And so those opportunities come as we, as we use our giftedness to serve Christ and as we endure suffering with hope. Uh, 
but they also come as we pray for them to come. And do you want opportunities to bear witness to Christ's grace? Well, pray for them. Uh, you know, whenever I am praying for them, which is not all the time, if I'm to be honest, but when I, when I do pray for them, they come. And it surprises me every time. <laughs> like I didn't expect God to answer my prayer. Sometimes God just drops opportunities in my lap in unexpected places and ways. And so if you want to be ready, right, recognize your own giftedness and use those gifts. And then be aware of opportunities. Look for them. Pray for them. And third, trust your Father. Maybe you, you don't pray for opportunities, again, because you're afraid of not knowing what to say. That's fair. Uh, here's what Jesus says about that in Matthew 10. He says, When they deliver you over, uh, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And Jesus is speaking to the twelve about persecutions that will come. And he says, when you're thrown into jail and delivered up to the judge, don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, but trust your Father in heaven. A healthy trust in the sovereignty of God helps here, right? We, We trust our Father. If we want to be ready to bear witness to His grace, we need to trust our Father Right? We won't always know what to say. Sometimes all we will be able to say is, that's a good question, I have no idea. And maybe our humility will impress on people the genuineness of our faith. Who knows? But the point is, we trust our Father. You may think that, that good Christians don't worry about these things. They always know what to say, and so they move out boldly. Well, first, if their boldness is because they think they know what to say, then their boldness is in their own strength, and that's a bad place to be. But second, arguably the greatest evangelist who ever lived asked for this from one of the churches that he planted in Ephesians chapter 6. He asked them to pray for him that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so Paul says to the Ephesians that he needs prayer for boldness and for words to speak. When we are afraid, consider the Apostle Paul. Pray for boldness. Pray for words. And then we remember the words of Jesus and trust the Spirit of our Father to use our trembling witness even when we don't have all the answers. And so if you want to be ready, right, we recognize our giftedness, we be aware of opportunities, and we trust our Father, and if we want to be ready, we need to then finally study the gospel. Uh, Ultimately, if you are really afraid that you won't know what to say if someone asks you about your hope, study the gospel. Get to know your faith. And and I don't mean here necessarily study apologetics, right? Apologetics is the, the science and art of defending the faith. You can do that if you want, but that's not what I mean. I mean get to know the gospel for yourself, Seek to understand how it applies to your life. Because the more comfortable you are applying the gospel to your own life, the more you will be able to creatively and lovingly apply it to the lives of others. Sharing the gospel doesn't have to be a guilt-inducing burden, something you have to do or else, but it can become a joy, right? As you see God's grace at work in your own life and realize how God might bless others as they come to know the gospel and bow their knee to Jesus as well. 
I really believe that the best preparation to sharing the gospel with others is growing in your ability to concretely apply it to yourself. Then you're not just figuring out arguments to logically defeat your opponent, but you're growing in your own grasp of grace, which is what we all really need, Christian and non-Christian alike. So we overcome fear as we see the glory of Christ, the Lord, we get ready as we recognize our own giftedness, as we, as we be aware of opportunities, as we trust our Father, and as we study the gospel for ourselves, which brings us then to the third point, maintaining a good conscience. You know, one of the things that you hear people say in our, about our present culture is that we have lost the ability to debate or discuss. And uh, politically, right, there, there seems to be no discussion, only deriding. Uh, People don't talk with one another, they talk at one another. And there's no persuasion, only ridicule. And sadly, sometimes you find this not only in politics, but in the church. Now, I know uh, that Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal, and the impotence of idols is often a subject of ridicule in the scriptures. And so there is certainly a time and a place to show the folly of someone's views, especially uh, those who are attacking the Christian faith. But even that must be done with humility. We are not saved because we figured it out or because we are so wise or so good. We are saved by the mercy of God despite our ignorance and folly and sin. When we talk to unbelievers about the gospel, we do so knowing that except for the grace of God, there go I. And so Peter says that we make our defense, verse 15, with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. And this point is important because sometimes Christians, maybe me, maybe you, are a bit uh, jerky about what we say. Maybe sometimes we're even rude or condescending to those with whom we disagree. Paul calls us to gentleness and respect. And gentleness, interestingly enough, if you just trace that out through the New Testament, gentleness is this key character quality in Scripture. Jesus calls himself gentle, meaning he is approachable in Matthew eleven twenty nine, and not warlike in Matthew 21, 5. Wives are called to have a gentle and quiet spirit, just a few verses earlier in Peter, because that's the kind of humility that is precious in God's sight. Jesus pronounces a blessing on the, the gentle or the meek, as it's translated in, in Matthew 5, saying, it is they who will inherit the earth which again is is counterintuitive because it's the warlike who conquer the earth. But Jesus promises it to the meek and lowly. We're to be gentle with one who is caught in sin in Galatians 6.1. We're called to be gentle and patient with those who sin against us and those who oppose us in the hope that God may grant them repentance, according to Ephesians 4 and 2 Timothy 2. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, meaning we can't manufacture it in our own strength. And it's part of what we put on when we put on the new self, which is renewed after the image of its creator in Colossians 3. And so gentleness is not something we turn on as a trick to win arguments. It ought to characterize us as Christians all the time, just as it characterized Christ. Now, that's not to say that there's not a time to drive out the money changers. Right? Jesus was hardest on those who kept others from pursuing God. But he was gentle to those, even in the worst of sins, who needed to come to repentance. 
And our witness to a Savior who was gentle ought to be done in gentleness, not in derision or condemnation or mockery, but in humility and meekness, conveying grace in our attitude as well as in our words. It was said of Christ in Matthew 12, 20, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Part of what this means is that as we approach people, whoever they may be, we, we need to get to know them. Are they the proud mocker of grace? Well, don't throw your pearls before swine. Are they a curious sinner? Then give a reason for the hope that is in you. Are they a bruised reed, a smoldering wick, a guilt-ridden, fearful individual? Give them grace. Approach them with gentleness. Build them up and don't tear them down. Again, the character sometimes is kind of the the annoying street evangelist who starts dumping the gospel on you without even finding out if you're a Christian or not. There's this great book on evangelism uh, where the guy starts out recounting a story where he is participating in an evangelistic meeting, but he's there at the beginning. Somebody else who's setting up doesn't realize he's the speaker and walks up to him and just begins to share the gospel at him, not knowing that he's actually the speaker for that event. Um, it, it's a caricature, but it's, but it's real, right? sadly. Don't do that, right? Uh, get to know people in gentleness and humility. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, not just the message, but the manner. We approach people with gentleness, even as we approach God with fear. Now, the ESV says gentleness and respect, uh, but the word is fear, and it's a word that's appeared in First Peter many times, and with the emphasis in Peter on not fearing people, he probably means here the fear of God. That is, we share our faith with gentleness toward others and fear toward God. In this way, we maintain a good conscience, being gentle with others and so not misrepresenting grace, and fearing God and so walking by faith. And in that way, our message and our manner go hand in hand. Our lives confirm our words rather than detract from them. Now, I've said before, and it bears repeating, that this doesn't mean being perfect. It doesn't mean that your witness is somehow ruined because you're a sinner. Otherwise, none of us could witness ever. But it does mean being repentant. And sometimes our repentance for our failures is actually the greatest witness that we can give. Because we show that we believe in a God who is merciful. And so we overcome fear as we see the glory of Christ the Lord. We get ready as we recognize our giftedness, as we make ourselves aware of opportunities around us, as we trust our Father, as we study the gospel for our own selves. We maintain a good conscience as we live with gentleness toward others and fear towards God. Which brings us then to our final point, honoring Christ. Why do we do all this? You might answer, we do all this so we can see people saved. And that's fair enough, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that he became a servant of all, becoming all things to all people, that by all means he might save some. But Peter gives a a slightly different answer, maybe somewhat odd answer in verse 16. He says, keep a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, maybe Peter means shame that leads to repentance. Meaning, as we give an answer with a clear conscience, those who oppose the gospel will be so struck by our faithful witness that they will be convicted of their sin, put to shame, and will repent of it and turn to Christ. And that may be true. 
And yet there is a similar ambiguity here as in 1 Peter 2.12 where Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, how will they glorify God? Is it because they will repent in light of our witness or is it because they will be forced to acknowledge God's goodness to us even in their unbelief? I mean, Paul says in Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Some will do that willingly and some unwillingly. The truth of the matter is, I don't, I don't know what Peter means here. I mean, it could go either way and, and it might go either way in any particular situation. And so it's important for us to remember and recognize that there is actually a purpose underneath the purpose, right? There's a why underneath the why. Do we want others to come to know Christ? Of course we do. But even more, we want God to be glorified. And in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, Paul calls believers to imitate him as he imitates Christ in seeking the salvation of many, right? We should seek that. But just before that, he says this, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Right? His point is, what, what do we pursue in the salvation of others? We pursue the glory of God. What are we doing when we give an answer and approach others with gentleness and keep our consciences clean? We're honoring Christ the Lord. This is the great end, right? The great purpose, the, great, the goal of all things, that God would be glorified in Christ. And so as we see the glory of Christ, the Lord, and as we recognize our giftedness, as we trust our Father that He will speak through us even in our weakness, as we seek to study the gospel for ourselves, applying grace to our own lives, and then in turn show that and share that with others in gentleness when opportunity comes, and as we walk in the fear of the Lord, the, the great end of all things is this, the glory of Christ. Will we find joy in all of that? Absolutely. Might others be saved? Lord willing. But our ultimate aim is the glory of Christ. And may God be so glorified in your life and in mine as we pursue him. Let's pray. Our Father, we do long both for people to come to know you and see your glory. But we do that because we long to see you glorified. We long to see you known and praised and worshipped by us, by others, by those who do not yet know you, by people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We pray, Father, that you would help us to pursue your glory as we seek to share your name and your grace with those around us. Give us opportunities, Father. Give us opportunities and help us to step out in weakness, even in our fear, trusting you, trusting you to speak through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.